0: The Vale Christian Church podcast. Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled "Part One: Judgment and Hell" out of Revelation chapter fourteen, verses nine through eleven. At Vale Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Good morning. We're in a series called One Love, and the series is about a battle. It's about a war, right? And war is ugly and awful and dangerous, and um, it's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So we've been talking about all kinds of things, and today we'll be uh, focused on a heavy, weighty subject. We're going to talk more about hell. Hell. So we're in this last um, book of the Bible today, and I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit, because... um... If you're going to talk about this battle, if you're going to talk about war, then you've got to talk about hell. If you're going to talk about hell, then you need to talk about uh, spiritual warfare. If you're going to talk about spiritual warfare, you've got to address the Antichrist and all of these crazy things. Um, and this is a subject people don't like talking about, actually, um, what I find. And you know what? What I'm, I've really thought through, uh, in particular today, is that a person like myself, anyway, maybe me in particular, uh, my emotions and my experiences don't um, make me feel like they help me capture the weightiness of the subject with adequate adequate words. Um, there's a uh, There's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of things going on here, and that is um, um, because when you really start digging into this subject, it's complicated, it takes some work, there's lots of misunderstandings, and lots of people avoid this subject because um, the biblical truth is, is that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment and torture. In fact, it's taught. Clearly that it is a place of eternal conscious torment. The scriptures clearly teach this. And, uh, but you you know the thing about talking through hell, uh, that you can't go to the scriptures and find just one location to unpack and then be satisfied that, "Oh wow, I understand it completely, and I know everything." It's smattered throughout the, the Bible. Jesus addresses the subject a lot, but it takes a lot of work to pull it together. So it's not something that you can just do in one message, and I try to divide it up into two messages in particular. I've talked through this a couple times already, but um, we're going to dive into it today. So that little um, worship tool in particular, if uh, you'd like to take notes, I'm going to help you. The notes are on the back, and there's some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'll uh, point those out. Um, for you as we go along, but you're going to need your Bible. Under every black chair is a Bible, and so you're going to want to turn to Revelation chapter 14 and 13, because we're going to talk through Revelation 13, that chapter, just for a few minutes, because it puts in context what we want to talk about in Revelation 14. Now, I've prayed that God would give me the ability to speak in such a way that you would feel the weight of the truth in this text And that he would open up your heart and your mind, especially for those who don't know Jesus, because if there's one thing that turns people off, it's talking about hell and the judgment of God, right? But I'm I'm praying that if you don't know Jesus today, that you would trust Christ while there's time, it's not always easy to speak the clear, basic message. Right out of Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-seven, he uh, it's appointed to man to die once, and after that to face judgment. No, I, uh, I I have the privilege, and I believe it's a it's an absolute privilege. I have the privilege of doing funerals for people. I do weddings and funerals and all kinds of things. But in particular, I think it's a privilege to do a funeral. When I do a funeral for a Christ follower, I'm telling you it's easy and I love it and it's, it's, I I love it because you are affirming and confirming belief in the gospel and man, I can just let go and people are right there, right? Even though it's a really hard time, it's the hardest thing in the world to though um, preach the gospel, not at a funeral where people don't believe, but at a funeral where people think that they believe, right? (laughs) Oh, man, that's when it's hard. That's when it's hard. So the Bible reveals, though, two destinations. This makes it so difficult. Two destinations, heaven or hell. And today's text describes hell. It's one of the most challenging doctrines in all of the Bible. It's very challenging. The idea that a righteous and holy God would send people for eternity to conscious torment. And so this doctrine is the very reason that many in the world are really turned off. They're disgusted in unbelief that that the God of the Bible would do this. I don't want to believe in a God like that. I had actually somebody say that to me just recently recently. Well, if that's the God of the Bible then i don't want to uh, that's not my God. <laughs> they can't imagine a God who would choose infinite punishment for sins that were committed by people. More and more well-known respected leaders are rejecting the his, the, the historic biblical understanding of hell It's actually pretty prevalent maybe it's not uh, maybe in the world that you're in where you're not really reading some of the same things that I read. But wow, leaders and pastors across our world are rejecting the biblical understanding of hell like crazy. What I mean by historical biblical understanding of hell, namely belief in this, specifically the final judgment, the eternal satisfaction and joy of the righteous and the endless suffering of the wicked. That's why we... Honestly, that's why we, I put together this series on eternity that preceded this series on one love, this battle for one love, loving God and God only. Hmm. The historical biblical view of hell is that it is endless suffering, endless Both words are biblical and important, endless. Hell is forever and never has an end. And suffering in this endless condition, people are in conscious torment can be described accurately as torture. Wow, what? No way. Torture, really? God would? (laughs) Apart from scripture, have you ever thought about this? Maybe you haven't. It just started thinking about this recently. Apart from Scripture, the Bible, there is no concept of hell. Where do we get the concept of hell? We get the concept of hell from the Scriptures, actually. Scripture teaches us about these invisible realities. And so um, based on what Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, not cross your fingers kind of hope. Being convinced of what we do not see. The word convinced, sometimes in some of the translations where we read that verse, can be convicted. It's really, it's the same thing, but I like the word convinced because the word here, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. The word here in this verse is something that brings you to a point of realization of guilt, of the fact of the weight of sin. Right, So faith has both assurance, a sweet positive side, looking ahead with hope. And hope is truth and belief to good things that God has promised, but also being convinced to see the invisible spiritual realms and to understand the threat or the warning for us as sinful people. It's by faith that we can see these invisible spiritual realities, the realities that we kind of just don't want to talk about all that much, right? Uh, uh, So hell as um, eternal conscious torment is an uncomfortable topic. I got to tell you, it's uncomfortable for me to address. It stresses me out, quite honestly. (laughs) And people tend to turn away from it as a doctrine. I can't believe it's uh, seven years ago now. It seems like time is just getting away and flying. In an interview with Pope Francis... You know, I, I, I knew more about and I read a lot more about Pope John Paul. Just sounds kind of funny maybe to say it, but I, I kind of like that guy. He was a pretty solid person. Um, but Pope Francis, that guy's out there a little bit. <laughs> but in an interview, um, he was asked about what happens to... A lost soul. What happens to a lost soul? What? What? Will will there be punishment for a lost soul, and how? And the response of Pope Francis is, it, it, it was distinct and very clear. He um he he gave an answer about annihilation, annihilation. This is what he said. He said, there is no punishment, but the annihilation of that soul. All others will participate in the beatitudes of living in the presence of the father. The souls that are annihilated will not take part in that banquet. With the death of the body, their journey is finished. Annihilated. Annihilation sounds like an ugly, nasty word, right? But I could not disagree more with Pope Francis. I think he is way off. I think he needs to read a little more. (laughs) Here comes your first note if you're taking notes right here in the fill in the blank. You ready? The difference between... Difference between suffering in hell forever if you don't trust Christ and just ceasing to exist or annihilation is a measureless difference. Let me say it again if you're not looking at the note. The difference between suffering in hell forever if you don't trust Christ and just ceasing to exist or annihilation is is a measureless difference. This is not a small issue in biblical teaching. This is actually really huge. It is massive, actually. When you just do a little bit of work, the difference between not existing and existing in torment forever is measureless. You can't measure it. It's huge, so uh, let's just get started with my first point, opposing the teaching of Scripture. Lots of people oppose the teaching of Scripture. They may not say it outright, but you are opposing it. Because the main problem with, that, with the view that unbelievers just cease to exist, all right, they go out of existence, is that the Bible teaches that those who do not trust in Christ will be punished with eternal suffering. I'm going to show you, show you how the truth declares that today. In other words, annihilation leads us away from biblical truth. And that always hurts people and dishonors God. Annihilation. What? Yeah. Romans chapter 11 and... Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably going to do a message just in this, uh, these few short verses in Romans chapter 11 here in the future. Verses 17 through 22 unveil a, a whole lot about who, God's heart. But in particular, one verse says, Notice therefore the kindness and the harshness of God. That God is most kind and harsh. Harshness towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness towards you, he's talking to the Christ follower here, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. When the Bible says in this verse, notice therefore the harshness of God, I think that we should do that. I think we should sit up and pay attention to the harshness of God as much as the kindness of God. We want to focus on his kindness. There's no doubt that we should focus on his kindness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his compassion his forbearance, all these things. is extremely patient, but there's a part of God that we must focus on and embrace it and know as well. I grew up in a church that could be described my grandfather's church. A lot of times we sort of poke at it that that church was well-known for preaching hell, fire, and brimstone. In fact, I got a text from my mother. She's listening to the live stream right now, so she's probably going to come unglued. She says, why don't we give invitations anymore at the end of a service, at the end of a worship service? And there's a good answer for that. I'm not going to answer it right now. Maybe I should. Quite honestly, because I don't have a whole lot of confidence in just one message in the world that we live in. I think that um, I think it takes multiple encounters with Christ before you're ready to surrender all that you are to Jesus and swear allegiance to the King. And so, I don't want it to be emotional. I'm extremely emotional. I want you to stew on it. So that's it. But that that was my grandfather's church, and there's a lot of things that I don't know that we've abandoned, but it's changed. This one, I think, oh. We should back up a little bit. Because it's a profound reality to speak of it lightly, to speak of hell lightly and God's harshness lightly, or not to speak of it at all, or to speak of it in a way that changes suffering into feeling nothing, annihilation, simply proves we don't understand hell. It's hard to exaggerate the horrid images, in my view. That Jesus used regarding hell. He actually talked about hell a lot. He taught about hell a lot. And if we, when you put it all together, when you piece it all together, here's some of the things that Jesus uh, said about hell. He said that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what is that? That sounds awful, gnashing your teeth. I don't even like it when, when you, have you ever heard somebody grinding their teeth? Doesn't that just turn you inside out? What is gnashing? your teeth like <laughs> while you're crying you're doing this right jesus says this mark 9:48 he also refers to hell as this place where the worm never dies you know what that is right that means worms are eating those that are in hell and those worms they don't die that sounds awful that sounds dreadful right He describes hell as an unquenchable fire, Matthew 3, 12, Mark 9, 43, an inextinguishable fire, a fiery hell, right, fire, he uses fire a lot, Matthew 25, 41, Matthew 18, 9, eternal punishment, Jesus' eternal punishment, eternal punishment Matthew 25, 46, anguish in the fire. And so uh, Luke 16, 24. The the point of all these verses, and if you you can put them all together, is that they're meant to make you shudder. They're meant to make you go, whoa, this is crazy. They're meant to uh, put fear in our hearts and feel dread when you talk about it. They're meant to make us recoil and pull back. From uh, from it, right? The reality of it, not by denying it. By what Je- I think, the, what what is Jesus's motive here is that he wants people to run to him and to embrace him, who died to save us from this hell, right? So obviously, this topic is a really difficult one to face and to talk about. But you cannot avoid it. I don't want to avoid it. Revelation fourteen verses nine through eleven. Uh, uh, enables us to understand in part what the Bible teaches about it, just in part. And I think a healthy biblical focus on hell has the power to make the Christ follower actually happier and full of more joy than ever. It's a paradox, but it's true. Here comes your second note right here. The more we know about what we deserve and have been rescued from the more our hearts and attitudes change. So the more that we know about hell, the more we know what we deserve. And the more we recognize and we understand we've been rescued from this as believers. So the more our hearts and our attitudes then change, I think it gives you opportunity to change. Can I just give you just four things that uh, I think that happen in your change as a, um, recognizing more and more about hell and coming face to face and understanding hell more? I just wrote down four. Our thankfulness to God and to Christ increases when you understand hell more. Our thankfulness to God and to Christ increases. Our, number two, our perspective on our own present trials and struggles will be Helpful. I think hell gives you more perspective. Number three, we'll turn away from grumbling and complaining. I think when you're face to face with hell, when you see it face to face, when you get a good grasp of it, I think it keeps you from grumbling and complaining. Some people need to see more of it, I think. I'm, and me as well. Me as well. Number four, we can live a life of satisfaction, joy, and gratitude to God for what he's done in rescuing us. When you get a good picture of hell and understanding of hell, I think that you are more grateful again to God for what he's done. So apart from understanding this doctrine of eternal conscious torment, the words actually the words savior and the word salvation, they don't have very much meaning. Save from what? Just not existing anymore. There's no pain in that. There's no it just seems so that's an easy out, isn't it, right? But savior and salvation implies a terrible danger. If you don't grasp that this life and death danger is what this is all about, you don't see the need for a savior or a salvation. But the Bible teaches that we do need a savior and we do need salvation, and thank God that it does. It's available through faith in Christ now, today, still in the realm of, um, uh, we are still in the realm of the day of salvation that God has offered to us, we're still we're still here now. So I want to unpack Revelation 14 verses 9 through 11. Let's just read it and see if, how far we can get. Um, starting in verse 9, a third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and his image and takes the mark on his forehead." Or his hand, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed, undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. Oh man. Verse 11 And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever. Those are real words. And those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night along with anyone who receives the mark of the mark of his name. Okay, so I think in order to understand what is being said here about hell and judgment you got to create some context or discover what the context is. And the context is in the chapter just before this, in chapter 13, you wanna flip the page, maybe, Um, some of you, chapter 13, right? The book of Revelation pulls the curtain back on the invisible spiritual realm. It's not easy to understand. There's lots of interpretation that needs to take place. And so you have to read the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. That's where all this imagery comes from. And then on top of that, There is truth and real things, there's metaphor, it's all mixed together, and oh man, unpacking this takes some work. So what you see above all, though, is that Jesus Christ in his glory uh, is featured in this last book of the Bible, and we also see the future, what must soon take place. And then just throw a little bit of, um, there's the rapture. And then this tribulation that, that happens, all right? So uh, this chapter 14, I, I, I believe in the rapture and that Christ followers are going to be caught up um, and, and taken out of this world. But there's evidently going to be some Christ followers then that um, emerge in the tribulation as well. So it, no matter where your positions are about that, it doesn't matter, at this point when you're talking about hell. So this is all in the mix here, all right? So the the, the second point here is that we're going to talk about the terrorism of the Antichrist. And chapter 13 kind of unveils all of that. So we've been discovering and building a picture that the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms are at war with the kingdom of God. So this is a real war. We're in the middle of this war right now, right? It's between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It is a battle. We're caught in. We're intentionally in the middle of it. Here comes your, your your next point that you can fill in the blanks, right? Satan, the dragon, he's described as the dragon, has a focused hatred for the people of God. We've already seen that. The people of God are the saints. He presently attacks and accuses day and night. He does this day and night. But in the future, in the future... His hatred for, and his attack against the people of God, it's going to escalate. It's going to escalate. So we, we, you can see shadows of it now, shadows of it now. And uh, the, you can, you can uh, identify the spirit of the Antichrist in the now, right? He will bring his masterpiece of deception, the Antichrist, the dragon will, Satan will, the Antichrist, right, he, he will bring this, also called the beast from the sea, in Revelation 13. John doesn't use the word Antichrist in, directly in this book, Revelation, right? But he does in 1 and 2 John. He uses it all the time. So he's the same author. In First and 2 John, he uses the word Antichrist. The, the word Antichrist means substitute Christ, Or one who takes the place of Christ. 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, chapter 2, calls him the man of lawlessness. We've talked about him that way. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, calls him the small horn, or in some of your um, Bible translations, maybe the little horn. He will be a world ruler. No doubt, according to Revelation 13, he will appear to be miraculously resurrected from a fatal wound and come back to life, winning the confidence of the world. And prior to this miracle, the world will suffer seven judgments initiated by trumpet blasts. That's all described in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. We're not going to go there today. The ecology of the earth, everything in the earth, right? All this stuff that we love in the earth is ravaged. All the green grass and all, and a third of the trees are burned up. A third of the ocean is turned to blood. A third of living creatures in the sea die. And a third of the uh, fresh water is poisoned. So we can imagine that in such a state of upheaval... In the geographical realm, right, leaders are going to emerge. Eventually, this one leader will come forth and take over the world. So Revelation chapter 13, look at verses 7 and 8. It says, the beast was permitted to go to war against the saints. Remember, we know what the saints are. That's the Christ followers, right? Followers of Jesus and conquer them. He was giving ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Verse 8, and all those who live on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written since the foundations of the world in the book of life belonging to the lamb who was killed. So not only will he have control over military and governments, but he'll be the focus of worship as well. Huh? Revelation 13 also reveals a powerful false prophet called the beast from the earth, all right? So who, who will lead this new worldwide religion to worship the Antichrist. He'll build or create uh, or, or fashion a miraculous supernatural image an idol in honor of the Antichrist, and will use the machinery of the worldwide government, the police state, so to speak, to compel worship. At the end of Revelation 13, we have these words. Starting at about verse 15, the second beast was empowered to give life to the image of the first beast so that it could speak. And could cause all those who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Verse 16, he also caused everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to obtain the mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Verse 17, thus no one was allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast, that is, his name or his number. So Christ followers... Those whose names have been written from before the foundations of the world in the Lamb's book of life will not participate in this false religion. They will not bow down and worship the idol or receive the mark of the beast. So they'll be the focus of the Antichrist's persecution and hatred. The prophet Daniel says he will kill many of them. He will wage war on them and will win for a short time. Here's the third point, the angel, there, there are angel warnings. That's the context for Revelation 14, okay? Now, I, I mean, I only got one Sunday. That's why I divided this up into two parts. So you have to come back to next, next week for a little bit more. But that's the context where we are now in Revelation 14, right? Here's your next note. In the middle of Revelation 14, we see three angels, three angels who are sent to warn people of the terrible danger of God's imminent judgment. So whether you believe this is in the tribulation or not, there are three angels that are going to show up. And they're, going to, they're, they're sent to warn people of the terrible danger of God's imminent judgment. So Revelation 14, look at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people. Verse 7, he declared in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has arrived and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. So, and then immediately in verse 8, look at verse 8. A second angel followed, the first declaring fallen. Fallen is Babylon, the great city. She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. So Babylon here is that system of human culture and government and society united in rebellion against God following the the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boast the boastful pride of life Revelation 14:8 Fallen fallen is Babylon that uh, the great city she made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. So then this third angel is where I want to focus. So all that to get to the third angel. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. The third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and takes the mark on his forehead or his hand, verse 10, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he'll be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever, and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. So the people of that time, that final generation, will be under extreme pressure to worship the beast and his image and to receive the mark of the beast in order to buy or sell. There's positive inducements for people to do this willingly. The Antichrist is going to be a compelling figure who will have, to some degree, rescued the world from economic disaster and the ability uh, uh, and and the inability to eat or drink or even survive under the previous judgment. So, this person's going to kind of have presented himself as like rescuing and saving people from these terrible things that have been going on, right? Because of this, they're going to have an affection for, for, this, for this person already. So in addition, he is skillful but a devious speaker and a politician, attractive and compelling. Adding to his persona, he's able to perform signs and wonders. Um, his own resurrection from the dead is going to be one of the feature things of many, Right? There's also negative inducements to worship the beast and obey his edicts, right? Those who, who do receive the mark cannot buy or sell, and eventually you're going to be put to death. Scary stuff. A police state with supernatural demonic powers to hunt down uh, dissidents and, um, and force over people to overwhelmingly bow down and worship. So a great fear of the Antichrist and the police state and the government is going to fall on people worldwide. So there's all kinds of things that are going to happen here, right? But there's something really terrible that's way worse than the temporary fear of the Antichrist. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. Listen to what Jesus says, Luke 12, 4 and 5. He says it, you know, multiple times. The gospel writers capture Jesus saying something. And he, he always says, when it's something really important, you'll say, I'm, I tell you the solemn truth. I'm telling you the truth. Listen, I mean, sit up, pay attention to what I got to say. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. Verse five. But I'll warn you, Jesus says. Whom you should fear. I'll warn you about who you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Pastors, Christ followers, all kinds of leaders today who say, I don't want to scare people into heaven." I just think they're afraid of what people think. I think they're wimpy. They're too worried about being liked. Jesus didn't mind scaring people at all. He picked that up about Jesus. He didn't mind scaring people at all. He he charged us. He admonished us to fear God who can destroy us forever in hell rather than fearing humans and human governments who can only kill the body and they can't do anything after they kill your body. God's forcing a choice here and warning the pretenders and the nominal, even amongst believers, don't don't do it. Fear God. Be willing to die for Jesus. So the pressure to take the mark um, will be unimaginable. Those who do receive it will do it willingly. It's, It's a decisive spiritual act this is not going to happen just inadvertently. Oops, I didn't realize what I was doing. No, no, no. No one's going to just sort of fall into it. It's a conscious decision that will be made in terms of one's will in his heart to worship an idol. Revelation 14.10. The angel says, right, that person will also drink the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he'll be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb of God. Let's move on to this fourth point, the wine of God's anger. This is an unbelievable phrase, the wine of God's anger. Hell is real, verse 10 says, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath. The metaphor is one of, of completely absorbing, drinking in, being immersed in. The drink is described as the wine of God's anger. Wine influences your mind and your heart. We know what you when you uh, absorb a lot of wine. So notice the strength of it, though. That person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed up undiluted in the cup of his wrath. Nothing is held back. It is undiluted, not mixed. This wine of God's anger will be full strength with maximum impact. That's the language. It's staggering to begin to comprehend the omnipotence, the omniscience of God's combined focus, anger and wrath on the destruction of an individual. It's frightening. I can't think of anything more terrifying than God focusing his anger and his wrath when you read through the scriptures about God and his capabilities of anger and wrath. Verse 10 makes a simple prediction. He will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the lamb. So this is the lake of fire from Revelation 20, the lake of fire. The torture with fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone, similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, is constantly before the holy angels and the lamb. That's Jesus Christ. Think of the implications here. The angels and Jesus are watching this. It implies that there's no squeamishness, there's no embarrassment, there's no shame, there's no pity about this among the angels or with Jesus. That's staggering to me. It will be done, it will not be done in some just corner of heaven somewhere or some place in eternity in the the corner. God's not ashamed of the righteous display of his justice and his holiness in his punishment of the wicked any more than he was ashamed to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone or the ancient world with a flood. He's not ashamed of it. He's not hiding it. He's not going to hide it. It's right there. And the prophet Isaiah, he says something that it it staggers me even more. Isaiah 66, in verses 23 and 24, it points to another audience that will be able to see this hell. Isaiah says, In verse 23, Isaiah 66, all people will come to worship me, says the Lord. They will go out and observe the corpse of those who rebelled against me. For the maggots, you could say worms, that eat them will not die. And the fire that consumes them will not die out. All people will find the sight of, Abhorrent. This implies that the rescued or saved or redeemed, those who have sworn allegiance to the king are able to see all this as well, which makes sense. Why would God hide it from his children? God's not ashamed of it. He wants us to know. He wants us to know. He wants us to see it. Ah. Uh, it could go on and on, so it's a good thing. I, you know, I divided this up into two parts reluctantly. It's ridiculous that I was reluctant. I can't get to all of it. I'm going to give you one last verse: Revelation twenty-one four. Revelation twenty-one four says he, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore. It didn't say suffering uh, right here, right? Or the torture part, right? Death won't exist anymore for the Christ follower or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. They will observe it without any crying is what this Bible verse says. There's not gonna be emotional pain or anguish. Our experience in heaven will not in any way be diminished by knowing or seeing the damned in hell. If anything, it's gonna feed our thankfulness and our humility. We will realize we all deserved to be there. The only difference between the damned and followers of Jesus is, was the grace of God, and see, God is about grace. You just cannot avoid talking about His judgment and hell. Goodness, I, you know I don't know, I didn't quite know how it was all, this was all going to come out. I told you that I feel like it's a, a weighty thing, and then I didn't feel like my words were going to be adequate today. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment and torture. A fact that's taught clearly in scripture. There are two destinations, heaven and hell. But there does not have to be hell. This is why God made a way for us so that we could avoid this. He doesn't want us there. He wants us in relationship with him. That's what we celebrated today at the Lord's Supper. So today, there is time. There is time to swear allegiance to the king and surrender your life to Christ. Hell as an eternal conscious torment is is a difficult thing to discuss. People turn away from it all the time. But it is real, and I think God put it there on purpose. I think, I know God put it there on purpose so that we would recognize that we're in need of a Savior, that we need to be saved from it. Will you bow your head with me? Thank you, Lord, um, that we can... Uh, Talk about these kinds of things in church as hard as they are. We know that this great battle, this great war is intentional by you, God, that you want us to love you and you alone that put you first place in our lives. You love us so much that you made a way for us to be in your presence. But the rebellion and the rejection of that way Uh, brings consequence. And I don't know how this is all gonna completely unfold, but know that this is real and that you want us to love you. And so God, help us to grab a hold of that and be appreciative and be driven to give our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the vale christian church podcast if you have any questions would like more information about our church or would like to see the video cast of this message please visit our website at www.valechristian.com